0: Everybody was coming to terms with the pandemic and the second Karabakh war hadn't started yet. August, 2020. Traveling abroad was almost impossible because of the lockdown. For summer holidays, me and my friend decided to go as far as possible to the most southern town in Armenia, Megri. We left Yerevan in a minibus, traveling south with five more passengers. The trip was long, so we decided to make a night stop halfway in Goris, the center of the Sunni region of Armenia. The city is in the valley. When you drive down to it, first thing you see is the red roofs. It's not an aesthetic choice. The locals used the leftover painting material of the micro-machine factory when it stopped operating along with the collapse of the Soviet Union. The city government was selling out the public lands for hotel development pitches. The roads near gift shops were first to get reconstruction funds. Even levying a tourism tax was being considered. South of Goris, the touristic Armenia ends and starts, as the southerners believe, the best nature of Armenia. The mountains get taller, the green gets greener, the rocks get shinier textures. Upon reaching Kapan, the biggest town of this region, we managed to find the only transport opportunity to Megri, the courier Armen's car. Armen took us and two others in his sedan. Armen looked around 50, talked non stop, either with us or with other clients on the phone. He had a thick southern accent, which was music to my ears. On the way, Armen was telling us about the latest science and technology news. In the US, he said, there is a town where cars ride through the air. There is another town where the color of the sky is being curated. On Mondays the sky is yellow, on Tuesdays it's pink, etc. Armen hoped that the high tech will get to Armenia sometime in the future. Before that happens, he sent his son to America to live in colorful cities. As we drive by Kajaran town, Armen says that the Velvet Revolution will be a real thing if the mine here is nationalized. In this case, no one in Armenia has to do any labor. The copper and molybdenum mine here is so rich that its content will pay off all the expenses of 3 million Armenians. This idea made a fellow passenger angry. He says, Kapanians love labor, they don't work for income. Kapanians have to work a lot and be paid little. If you don't work, you die young. The copper and molybdenum mine in Kajaran is the biggest work site in this area. It affects everything else in the town of Kapan and Kajaran. For instance, real estate prices are as high as in the capital city of Yerevan. To afford a house in Kapan, one must be a miner. Those who choose other professions have to leave the town. The mine also affects family life. Men work hard in the mine, exploiting their health, and their wives spend the money to buy vitamins for their husbands. I also learned about environmental issues from a green activist, Razaryan who I met in his yard in Kapan. His NGO hosts hikers from around the globe, who stop here to see the remains of the Silk Road. The the is, not a not a is not against mining per se, but he thinks the economy should be diversified. Kapan used to be the fourth biggest town in Armenia. Now it's the eighth. If you live near the gentrified city Yerevan, you can do business and sell your products easily there. In Kapan, you cannot do that, it's too far. Monotonous life, limited prospects in the mining industry, being cut off from the world, may well be reason for depression. Hence, the environmental impact of the mine is not the only cause of health issues such as cancer in here. Our car stops in Kajaran. The richest town in Armenia looks desperately poor. One passenger finger points to an ugly pavement and a DIY fence and says Isn't it a shame? So many tourists come here and see this dirt. Further on the road, the car reaches Alpine Height, 2,500 meters from the sea level. I could see no one from the car window, but I was aware we are passing by the biggest wildlife refuge in the country. The highway then gets us down to 500 meters above the sea level, the lowest place of Armenia. And here we have finally arrived at our destination, Megrin. We were dropped at the sidewalk of an interstate road, which is also the main road in Megrin. The road looks scary not because of the fast cars, but because of trucks transporting liquid gas from Iran. A cloud of dust stands in the air when they pass. One wonders, is this town dirty from the explosions in the gold mines, or is it just windy? We rush onto the pavement. To go anywhere, one needs to climb up. It feels harder to climb to the hotel with heavy bags on your shoulders. Memory is like a bowl, and the houses are scattered on the walls of that bowl. It looks like panopticum. Every balcony sees the yards of the folks on the opposite hill. You can't really keep things private here. In Armenia, people are only discovering the uniqueness and sellability of their hometowns and villages. Jermuktis are proud of their mineral water. Everyone is a skier in Zakhazor and a poet in Stepanavan. In Megri, people don't have to sell their town. It's number one already, but they are proud of their fruits: figs, pomegranates, and persimmons. Here is some vox pop I did in downtown Megri, where people tell about their town. <laughs> I this is a great place. The fruit is amazing here, sweet and delicious. All these mountains accumulate the heat during the day and they give the heat to the fruit during the night. So the plants are constantly kept warm. That's why the fruit is extraordinarily sweet here. Merry people are very hospitable. They are as sweet as their fruit is. I even give fruits to the tourists, even Russians, who come here to see the pyramids. Then they leave and send me photos on their thanks. Our August visit coincided with the closure of the border with Iran because of COVID, which was dire for Megrians. Logistically, it's the shortest way out. Before the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Karabakh War, Megri had a railroad connection to Yerevan, which took a three-hour picturesque journey through Nakhichevan, an autonomous republic within Azerbaijan on the west. The tunnel and the rails fell victim to the war, too. As a result, Megri is stuck. And the only way to get to the capital is a nine hour drive through a zigzag up the mountain road built by the last Soviet Armenian leader, Karen Demirjan. Needless to say, this is what we took to make it here. Having the Iran getaway was a solace. And now that it's gone because of COVID, everyone felt claustrophobic. And nostalgia for the trains kicked in. We went to the railroad station of Megri with our hostess Lucine. The station has a white statue of a girl who used to have a dove in her hand, the symbol of peace. Now the statue is damaged and the dove is gone. The station faces the Arax River, which draws the national border of Armenia with Iran and Turkey. Lucine and her friend Nara are remembering their past out loud. They said that they would take the night train at midnight and would reach Yerevan at seven in the morning. Every time someone was drafted to the army, they would bring the guy to the railroad station and see them off with live instruments, doodos and drums. There are two symmetrical rooms on both sides of the hall facing the boarding platform. One of them was the waiting room you could store your luggage and wait for the train. The other was the ticket office. The ruins retain the acoustics of the place. Lucina said that there used to be a statue of Stepan Shahumyan on the square. Shahumyan was probably the most famous Bolshevik of Armenian origin, leader of Baku commissars. Too big a figure to be cancelled in the post Soviet era of rising national sentiments. <speaking in Spanish> we found and reconstructed the remains of Xiaomians' booth on the square. Tanga no Import trucks don't unload here, but in the capital city of Yerevan, 400 kilometers away, transportation costs add up to the market prices of goods. One year later, I returned to Meghri. A year from my first trip, and incidentally 10 months from the Second Karabakh War that happened in autumn 2020. The Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, which was frozen for about 30 years, just turned into a large-scale war. This conflict dates back to the 1990s when the ethnically Armenian region of Nagorno-Karabakh proclaimed independence from Azerbaijan, which was never recognized and eventually Azerbaijan claimed it back with military force. Conflict has affected the communications of Meghri for 30 years, but now it hurts again, killing about 4,000 Armenian soldiers. At least 20 of them were from Meghri. The photos of the fallen soldiers are turned into huge graffitis and are now part of the Meghri landscape. Nostalgic stories of happy days were not there this time. People were unwilling to chat and were monosyllabic. Maybe I was also reluctant to do Voxbob as I did last year. It just didn't feel right this time. Compared to the last year, there are so many policy changes. European Union is now founding a road which will shorten the ride to Yerevan by some 80 kilometers. and it will be a faster road through tunnels and flat terrain. The Armenian government did not nationalize the mine. But it significantly higher the taxes on mine exploiters, by 15%. Some of the raised funds will be allotted directly to the local communities. Iranian border is now open for passengers. There is even some hope that the railroad will function again. So much good news, but there is no euphoria down in the south. The 44-day war shocked the country climbing the streets of Megri again, I sense that the war has depressed Southerners too. Now the talk about communications roads, and railroads are part of the post-war political discourse, possible peace deal or possible new war. Hence I felt uncomfortable to indulge in personal memories of trips and journeys of yesteryears. Some politicians think that watching a horrible war live on your smartphone apps or YouTube has a positive side effect. It reminds people of the human cost of war. Some people think seeing the war horrors makes people want the peace. In reality, seeing the war doesn't bring compassion for the other. It doesn't even bring a wish for revenge. Seeing the worst makes people get accustomed to it. It raises the limits of tolerance to cruelty and cuts down the expectations from politics. If we were against the oligarchic economy, now we can take it if that oligarch is Armenian. If we wanted fair working conditions, now having a job is satisfactory enough. If we wanted to travel across borders, now the freedom of travel will be for goods only.